So this semester we have been talking about eschatology. Who can tell me what eschatology means? Yes, the study. That's what the uh, logi on the back means from the Greek word logos of the eschatos, Greek word for end or final uh, things. And so uh, eschatology is the study of the end times. Last week we had a really fun lesson where we talked about eternal condemnation, which is everyone's favorite topic. And, uh, and then this week we're going to follow that up by talking about the other side of that coin, which is uh, eternal life. And, uh, and so the, uh, the Greek phrase zoe ionios, and uh, so zoe as in uh, uh, zoology, which is the study of living things, and so life. And then Ionios, uh, which is uh, eternal or everlasting. And so a number of passages that talk about this you're probably familiar with. And so you go to a football game and behind the, uh, the field goal they have John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or a little bit later on in John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or John chapter 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him, uh, believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Romans 6, 22 through 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Galatians 6, 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, uh, for from, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 1 John 2.25, which we'll be tackling uh, pretty soon. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And then 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So you see this concept, eternal life, uh, again, zoe ionios. You see this throughout uh, the scriptures, in particular in the New uh, Testament. So what we want to talk about today is 12 things that you need to know about eternal life. Twelve things you need to know about this concept as it comes up in Scripture. And I want to begin by just kind of asking this question, why does this matter? Well, the first two points that we'll talk about here really help us to understand why this is an essential doctrine for us to understand, that this is not merely something that is academic, something that is irrelevant, but something that is profoundly practical to our life and our godliness and holiness and, uh, and so forth. And so pay attention as we go along. Again, this is not just some ivory tower academic discussion. This has profound implications for the way that you live your life. And so the first thing that you should know about eternal life is that the Bible commands us to think of it. The Bible commands us to think about eternal life. Yes, it assumes it. Every passage that you read that talks about God giving you some sort of reward assumes that you're thinking about that reward, that that reward is somewhat motivating uh, you toward obedience or faithfulness or whatever it might be. But even more uh, explicitly uh, than this, it actually explicitly commands you to think about eternal life. John 6, 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. There's this command that you work for the food that endures to eternal life. That doesn't mean you work for life, 
but, uh, but you work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his uh, seal. Again, that doesn't mean that you work in order to attain eternal life. We'll talk about that as we move along. First uh, Timothy six twelve. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Philippians three thirteen through fifteen. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do: forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then listen to what he says here. Let those of us who are mature think the same way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So uh, Paul says here that he thinks of eternal life. He thinks of that which is to come. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think the same way. Or Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If we had time to really dig into the context of this uh, Colossians 3 passage, we would see the immediately preceding verses uh, are about the inability of uh, the law, the inability of rules and regulations to stop what he calls the indulgences of the flesh. And then immediately after this Colossians 3, 1 through 4 passage, uh, it talks about uh, the command for us to put sin to death. And so you see this command that we would seek the things that are above, set our minds on the things above, is kind of the bridge between how uh, you're not to put to death sin by simply obeying these, uh, these rules or, or regulations or white-knuckling your sanctification but you are to put sin to death by thinking of God's grace and mercy and eternal life and so forth. The way that you defeat sin is not by white-knuckling it. It's being uh, so filled with the knowledge and love for truth that the lies of sin pale in comparison. So that leads us to our second point. First point, the Bible commands us to think about eternal life. And the second point, what we believe about eternal life affects how we live even now. What we believe about eternal life affects how we live now. For example, the Bible is going to describe eternal life as being this means for enduring suffering. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 in your notes. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal so uh, our eschatological viewpoint our view of the end times is going to affect the way that we are able to endure suffering in the present it also affects our ethics eschatology affects your ethics, your morality, your sanctification. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as we do, I'm going to read a passage and I want you to notice how often Paul is going to transition from the imperative, that's a command of scripture, to the indicative. That's uh, something that's a description of what God has already uh, done. So how faith in the future promises of God provides fuel for present obedience. So look there at 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware 
that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then listen to the imperative here. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are Doing. So you'll see here how this uh, sort of future perspective, the future promises of God, provide the fuel for present obedience to God. Because you're not destined for wrath, therefore encourage one another in the future, um, in the present. Because you're not destined for wrath in the future, encourage one another in the present. Those just uh, a couple of examples, but we see this theme throughout the Bible. That eternal life, this future promise of God, affects our present uh, obedience. So you might have heard it, it before that, uh, that maybe someone claimed that someone else was uh, too heavenly minded in order to be earthly good. But biblically, the exact opposite is going to be true. That uh, the only people who are actually of any lasting, ultimate earthly good are those who are somewhat heavenly minded. Those who have set their mind on things that are above. By the way, this is why Christianity was one of the leading forces in stopping the slave trade, in uh, the founding of uh, universities originally, in the founding of most hospitals originally, and, uh, and so forth. So when most people think of eschatology, they think about it only as being sort of this uh, intense debate over things like the rapture or the millennium that we have uh, talked about, or antichrist, or prophecies involving the Middle East, or whatever it might be. When in reality, Eschatology is really about your marriage. Eschatology is really about that problem that you have with pornography. Eschatology is really about your present obedience and your ability to uh, endure suffering. Eschatology is about your uh, present obedience in regards to your work, uh, whatever it, uh, it might be. Let me give you one example of that. Let's, uh, let's take marriage. Let's imagine, if you will, that your marriage is just absolutely unraveling. Your spouse is just the absolute worst. They're mean, they're selfish, they're rude, they're insensitive, they're emotionally distant, whatever it, uh, it is. Well, there's two ways to respond. The first way is to completely uh, not take into account eschatology at all. And in that way of thinking, you think, I have 40 years, 50 years, 60 years left, and so I need to have my best life now. So what are you going to do if that's your perspective? You're out, right? Divorce, that's your option because this is all you have. So you might as well make the best of it. The other one, the one that actually takes the biblical uh, uh, imperatives of eschatology into account, says, what's 40 years in the face of eternity? What's 40 years in the face of eternity? I would be a fool to chase some temporary fading happiness while neglecting an inexhaustible source of hope and joy. And that's what all sin basically entails, this sort of trade, this sacrifice of eternal joy for the sake of, uh, for the sake of something fading and passing, for a fancy, 
And, uh, and so that's what the prophets are consistently denouncing uh, in, uh, in the prophetic literature. Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13, I think you have this in your notes. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for themselves uh, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what we believe about eternal life affects how we live in the here and now. Sanctification, obedience, doing the will of God, suffering, all of those are eschatological in nature. The realities of the future compel us and empower us in the present. That's the second thing to know about eternal life. The third thing for you to know about eternal life, since Scripture is progressively revealed, we have a much clearer revelation of eternal life as we get into the New Testament. You've probably noticed this before. If you've read the Old Testament, there's not as much focus on this phrase, eternal life, within the context of the Old Testament. Instead, the reward is long life in the land. One of the things that's interesting, we've talked about this a number of times here in Theological Equipping, one of the things that's really interesting about the uh, kind of the movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament is you see this expansion motif. There are promises that are made in the Old Testament, and the New Testament doesn't merely fulfill those promises. The New Testament actually expands those promises. There's greater promises than you might have anticipated. And so in the Old Testament, there is this promise of land, and that land is restricted to this small little sliver of land that we know as, uh, as Israel or the Holy Land or whatever it might be. And in the New Testament, there is still a promise of land, but it's not this little tiny sliver of land. It's the entire globe. The entire world now is what God promises to his people. Or in the Old Testament, there is this promise of the king who's going to rule over Israel. But in the New Testament, you see an expansion. He's not merely going to rule over Israel. He's going to rule over all of the nations. Uh, In addition, you have that same sort of idea that in the Old Testament, God primarily deals with Israel. In the New Testament, you see that Israel alone is not the object of God's affections, but God actually sets his affections on all of the nations. He's going to make disciples of all nations. In the Old Testament, you see that the, there are these temporary sacrifices that have to consistently be made over and over and over again, and they only offer temporary forgiveness. In the New Testament, you get this one sacrifice that's an eternal sacrifice. It's sufficient to atone for all sins. And then in the Old Testament, you see this promise of long life. And in the New Testament, you see it's not merely long life, it's eternal life. So again, you see this expansion. It's not just that the New Testament fulfills the promises of the Old. The New Testament expands it. We've used this illustration before, but imagine that I make some sort of promise to you. Imagine that I say in one year, I'm going to give you a car. I don't kind of classify what kind of car, whatever it might be. I just say in one year, I'm going to give you a car. And at the end of that year, I do give you a car. Not only do I give you any sort of car, but I give you a brand new car. And let's imagine, just throw in whatever your dream car is, right? If you're Tim, it's a new Prius or something like that. If you're Zach, it's a a new CRV or something. But for some of us, that might be a Ferrari, that might be a Bentley, that might be, if you're having a midlife crisis, a Corvette or something, right? Everyone has this sort of dream, what it would be. You you can get whatever you want. I'm going to give it to you. I give that to you at the end of the year. Now, in addition to that car, I also give you $10 million. And I give you your dream house. And I give you your dream job. 
All right? Have I failed in my promises to you? No. What have I done? I've given you not only what you expected, but I've expanded them. That's what the New Testament is going to do. God makes certain promises to his people in the Old Testament, and he fulfills them in the New Testament, but he fulfills them in such a way as to expand them. So when we read the Old Testament, we shouldn't expect as much of this promise of eternal life because God is going to expand that and clarify his revelation. This is why the, uh, the uh, New Testament is going to speak of the Old Testament as if it's a shadow, whereas the New Testament is the substance. Which one is better of those? The shadow of something or the substance of that thing? The substance, right? That's what the New Testament is. It's a substance, whereas the Old Testament is a shadow. You'll see this uh, language in Colossians. You also see it in Hebrews. I put a couple of passages in your notes. Hebrews 10, 1. For since the law was but, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Or Hebrews 8, 5 through 6. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So it's not just a new covenant that you see in the New Testament. It's a better covenant. Therefore, we shouldn't necessarily expect the Old Testament to be as filled as the New Testament with all of these promises of eternal life, though we do see hints. So I was uh, reading in uh, an article um, uh, as I was prepping for this, and I read this. It is surprising to learn that in ancient Israel, there was no belief in a life after death. That's really surprising to me because that's not true. The idea that there is eternal life is not fully developed as it is in the New Testament, but you see little hints, you see little slivers. Uh, and so uh, a few examples, Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Psalm 49, I'm not going to read uh, that for the sake of time, but it's the same sort of idea. So you see hints, you see glimmers, you see shadows, you see little slivers of eternal life in the Old Testament, but the New Testament really expands that picture. The Old Testament, if it's, a, if it's an illustration, you might say that the concept of uh, eternal life in the Old Testament is like a flashlight or a, a, a torch, whereas in the New Testament, it's the blazing sun. It's progressively revealed and much more clearly so. So that's the third thing to know. The fourth thing that you should know about eternal life, as with most aspects of the kingdom and eschatology, eternal life is already, but not yet. That's a big phrase that you have to know. When you're thinking about eschatology, that phrase should just go along with it. When you hear the word eschatology, you should think already, but not yet. That's what's called inaugurated eschatology, inaugurated eschatology. God's promise of life has been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. It's been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. There's a sense in which we already possess eternal life. There's a sense in which you already possess eternal life if you love and trust Jesus. But there's also a sense in which the full promise is yet to come, in which you don't possess eternal life. 
So you see both of these sort of aspects in the New Testament. The present sense, the sense in which you already possess eternal life. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Or John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has already passed from death to life. So there's this present tense to it, but there's also this future waiting. It's been inaugurated, but not consummated. You see the consummation, you see the, uh, the fullness of it in the future uh, sense of eternal life in the New Testament as well. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment. Zach talked about that last week. But the righteous into eternal life. So eternal life is something that you will go into in the future. Luke 18, 29 through 30. And he said to them, that's Jesus, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom and of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Romans 2, 6 through 7. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. And then Romans 6, 22, we read earlier uh, that uh, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so the reason that this will be really important to understand, this already not yet, this inaugurated uh, eschatology, the reason that that will be uh, important will be progressively clearer as we continue on. So let's look at the fifth thing that you need to know. As death took place in two stages, so does life. As death took place in two stages, so does life. So this helps us to understand part of this already, but not yet. All right, so think back to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, God uh, tells his people, he says, look at all of these trees, you can eat from any of them. All of the fruit, you can eat from any of them. But he points to one in particular and says, but of that particular one, you cannot eat from the day that you eat of it, what? You will surely die. Now, let me ask you a question. He says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Do they die in that moment? Who's, uh, raise your hand if you say yes. Raise your hand if you said no. Raise your hand if you says yes and no. All right. Yes and no. That's the answer, right? What do they experience instantaneously in that moment? Spiritual death. What do they uh, experience subsequently at, at some point in the future? Physical death, all right? So you see that exact same thing when it comes to eternal life. That we have immediate, instantaneous, the moment that you are regenerated, the moment that your heart is inclined toward God, the moment that you uh, exercise faith, all of these things, in that moment, you immediately have spiritual life. But there is also a waiting for physical life for resurrection, for these sorts of things. So you see this immediate spiritual life and then a countdown towards subsequent spirit, uh, physical life. And so uh, you see this death, as death took place in two stages, so does life. Sixth thing you need to know. The promise of eternal life doesn't mean that we don't die. That's not what the promise of eternal life means. There's an objection that goes like this. If death is the penalty of sin and we've been forgiven for the penalty of sin, 
then why do we still die? You ever had that question? If death is the penalty of sin, and if we've been forgiven all of the penalty of sin, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, why do we still die? Well, not only do we know that we still die experientially, but the Bible actually explicitly says it. So for the record, we do still die, all right? In case you just wondered whether or not you're going to die, you are going to die unless Jesus returns before you have a chance to die. The Bible explicitly says that, First uh, Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that's a, 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 a metaphor for death, we might live with him. First Corinthians 15 talks about those who have fallen asleep, again, death in Christ. So why do we still die? I want to answer that in a couple of ways. First, by asking another question. Well, why do you still struggle with sin? If you've been forgiven, if you've been cleansed, if you've been sanctified, if, uh, if the penalty of sin has been removed, why do you still sin? Because even though the penalty has been removed, the presence and the effects of sin have not. And that's the same with death, by the way. The penalty of sin has been removed, but the consequences have not been fully removed at, uh, at this point. So that's the first way to respond, is just to think of the analogy of sin and apply that to death. But the second reason that we, uh, that we still die is because death hasn't been destroyed. Death hasn't yet been destroyed. It's been defeated, but not destroyed. By the way, Tim said that one time in a theological equipping class, and, uh, and uh, a lady who was visiting uh, literally left the church as a result of that. She said, I can't believe that you would ever say that death hasn't been destroyed. You are uh, blaspheming. You are defaming Christ by implying that he hasn't done absolutely everything that is necessary. And we said, no, he's done everything that's necessary. He's just not completely consummated it yet. And so before you do what this lady did and leave the church, let's just read what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, Notice it says, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So when is this going to occur? It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable. When is that? The resurrection, right? The whole context of 1 Corinthians. If you're in your Bible and you're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, the subheading will probably say the resurrection. That's the entire point of that chapter. Later on, or actually it's earlier, just later in my notes, uh, in verses 22 through 26, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This hasn't happened yet. Is death defeated? Yes. Is there any chance whatsoever that death will rise up and actually be able to defeat God and his kingdom and, uh, and so forth? No, absolutely not. His, uh, his victory is decisive. Death has been defeated, but it's not ultimately been destroyed. Not yet. 
Remember, much confusion when it comes to eschatology can be solved if you just simply remember the concept of inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology deals with the already, but not yet. Has death been defeated? Already it has, but not yet in this final decisive sort of sense. So that's the sixth thing. The promise of eternal life doesn't mean that we don't die. We'll still die. Seven, eternal life concerns aspects of continuity and discontinuity. I throw that in here just because there's a lot of speculation uh, about that. The Bible doesn't give us this sort of definitive uh, list of all the ways that our present existence will mirror the future. But suffice to say, there will be some aspects of continuity as well as some aspects of discontinuity. You'll still be you, but a new and improved you. We'll still live on this earth, but a new and improved earth. What will you look at like? I don't know. Somewhat like you, but better. Whatever that means. No clue what that really means. Here's why I bring that up. Because a lot of the questions that you and I might just innately, naturally have uh, are related to the degree to which there will be continuity and discontinuity. Will I have a family? Will I know my family? All of these sorts of things. And the Bible really is relatively silent on a lot of the questions that you and I might uh, ask. Will I have my dog for eternity? Probably not. Will I have my cat? Definitely not. There's no cats. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the early church and in the Middle Ages, there was this uh, speculation, there was this uh, strong desire to really speculate on what, the, uh, what our age would be in the resurrection or what we would look like in the resurrection. And people came up with these elaborate theories and they would fight each other. They would actually fight. So one person would say, you'll be 30 years old because that's the perfect age. And another one would say, no, you'll be 33 because that's when Jesus died. And they would literally fight each other over these things. The problem is the Bible doesn't actually say. And so why are we speculating on things that, uh, that we don't need to know and the Bible doesn't clarify? And so I'll be Jeff in the eternal life, just a different Jeff. Tim will still be Tim, but without diabetes and not needing glasses and so forth. There will be some element of continuity, also some element of discontinuity. We'll be be able to, uh, will 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 we be able to run faster or jump farther? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say about those things. So there's continuity. There's also discontinuity. Eight. Eternal life is one of the results of redemption, forgiveness, and justification. I mentioned this so that you can see there is this logical relationship that exists between these various doctrines that we've studied. As we've studied things like soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, that you'll see we did, uh, we talked before about ordo salutis. Anybody remember what that Latin phrase means? Order of salvation. So order of salutis means order of salvation. And we talked about the importance of this and how it differs depending on your uh, way of reading uh, Scripture. But what we see in Scripture is that uh, in the order of salvation, the order in which God accomplishes certain things, that we are predestined. The Bible says, when are we predestined? Before the foundation of the world. So you're predestined before you even exist. You're predestined. Then you're called. At some point, God calls you through the gospel. That's an effectual call. It's a call that actually awakens you from death. So he calls you. He regenerates you. You're given a new heart. Then the result of that uh, is you exercise faith. You believe. And in that moment, you are justified. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. 
And then the end result of that is you are glorified. And glorification has to deal with eternal life. So eternal life is really about the results or the reward of all of those doctrines like justification or redemption or forgiveness. Because you're justified, you have eternal life. Because you're forgiven, you have eternal life. Because you're redeemed, you have eternal life. So eternal life, like all of those other doctrines, is by grace alone through faith alone. But what you see is you see these different emphases in the New Testament depending upon the individual author. And so the phrase eternal life is not a huge phrase for Paul. For whatever reason, Paul doesn't use that phrase all that often. Of, uh, of the, all of the letters that Paul writes, that phrase, eternal life, is only used nine times in all of Paul's uh, writings. Whereas in Johannine literature, that's the, the works by John, it's used 23 times. So 23 out of, uh, I think it's 43 uh, times used total in Scripture, 23 of them occur uh, by John. So both Paul and John are concerned with eternal life, but Paul is more concerned with explaining how that occurs. How do you get eternal life? Through justification, through forgiveness, and so forth, through redemption. John, writing later than Paul, sees Paul's already laid that foundation. And so he's going to talk about what's the implication of justification and redemption and all of the, those sorts of things. And so uh, eternal life is one of the results of redemption, forgiveness, and justification. And that's the reason that different authors are going to emphasize different things. Some of them are going to emphasize how you get eternal life, and some of them are going to emphasize eternal life itself. But it's the, uh, a concern of all the uh, New Testament authors. Number nine, eternal life does not ultimately take place in heaven. We've talked about this a number of times before, but there are two stages of life after death. Right, so you die, you love and trust Jesus, you are ushered not into the ultimate eternal life stage, you're instead ushered into what we call the intermediate stage. We had an entire class um, on the intermediate uh, state, so you can go back and listen to that. That's asking the question, what happens between death and resurrection? That's the intermediate state. And, uh, and so if you look in, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, it describes that state as if you are unclothed. You're in heaven, you're experiencing joy, you're in Christ's presence, and yet something's missing. What's missing? Your body. You don't have a body, and you were made to have a body. And so Paul uses this imagery of uh, it's like you're naked. You're missing something that you need. And so this is the intermediate state. That's not the eternal state. The intermediate state takes place in heaven, the eternal state takes place on earth. You get a resurrected body and you get a recreated earth. You get this new, renewed earth. And so we see this throughout the New Testament. So the eternal state, the intermediate state is about life after death. What happens to you when you die? That's the inter uh, intermediate state. The resurrection, the eternal state is about, as uh, N.T. Wright says, life after life after death. Life after life after death. Death. So again, the intermediate state takes place in heaven. The eternal state takes place on the new earth. Second Peter three thirteen. But according to his promise, we are awaiting for we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in, in which righteousness dwells. Revelation twenty one one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Again, going back to the previous point, you see aspects of continuity and discontinuity. There's life. But it's different than our current experience of life. How so? You have eyes, but there's no tears. God dwells with man, but not in a temple. You see all of these elements of continuity and discontinuity. So there is continuity and discontinuity between there's a heaven and there's an earth, but it's a new heavens and a new earth. So lots of aspects of our current life, lots of the things that plague us, lots of the things that we associate with life now, when we think of the word life, lots of those elements won't be in the eternal state. There's no tears, there's no death, there's no mourning, there's no crying, there's no pain. That leads into the next point, which is that eternal life is both quantitative and qualitative. Eternal life is both quantitative and qualitative. By quantitative, you might notice the word quantity there. I mean that the adjective ionios, ionios, which is uh, eternal, that, uh, that word asks the question, how long? That's an aspect when we're talking about eternal life, we're asking the question, how long? And the answer is eternal, everlasting, all right? The word ionios, you might even kind of be able to hear the, uh, the English word eon, in there, and, uh, and so that's uh, uh, related to that. That's, we get the, the English word eon from uh, ionios. The word eon uh, refers to a billion years in astronomy, but in Scripture, it's not just a billion years. It's a billion times a billion, cubed to infinity or whatever it might be, right? In fact, the word forever that you encounter is always, uh, almost always ionios, and so it's not merely translated as eternal. Oftentimes, if it's used in and of itself and not just as an adjective modifying zoe or life, it's going to be translated as forever. A lot of the places where you just see the word forever is uh, the Greek word ionios. The phrase forever and ever that you see, like God is going to be praised forever and ever, that is literally tus ionios or tus ionos, tone ionon. It's uh, from ages to ages, ionios to ionios. So that's the quantitative uh, that uh, the adjective eternal asks the question, how long? How long will you be in this life? And the answer is eternally. It's everlasting. It's never ending. It's infinite. So that's the quantitative aspect, but that's not all that the word signifies. Uh, it has both denotative and connotative elements. You familiar with these words? Denotative refers to what? It's what the word actually means. Connotative is uh, what it implies, all right? And so denotatively, the word just means everlasting. But connotation, the connotation that we see in Scripture, is not merely that this word is concerned with uh, uh, the quantity of our life, but also the quality of our life. It denotes a length of time, but it connotes a quality of life. That's what qualitative 
means quantitative asks the question, how long? Qualitative asks the question, how good? Or what type? You see both in a a definition I found in a Bible dictionary uh, that says eternal life is this, life at its best, having infinite duration, that's quantitative, characterized by abiding fellowship with God, that's qualitative. So you see both of those there. Here's why this is uh, important. There's a number of reasons. I'll just give you a couple. If it just refers to a length of time, if all we mean by eternal life is that life as we know it goes on eternally, if that's all we mean by it, then unbelievers have eternal life. We talked about last week uh, how uh, we don't see the concept of annihilation in Scripture, that there is eternal condemnation. So if unbelievers live in uh, eternal conscious torment for eternity, then they have eternal life. If that's all that we mean by the phrase eternal existence. And so we, uh, we read a quote last week by Hermann Bavink that says, life in Scripture is never mere existence and death is never the same as annihilation. So that's one of the reasons that it's important to recognize that it's quantitative and qualitative is because it helps us to distinguish the eternal existence of unbelievers with the eternal existence of believers. But another reason is because this provides the fuel for our anticipation. This should provide hope. This should provide excitement. This should uh, provide anticipation for us. I don't know if you were like me, but when I was a kid, I would think about the idea of eternal life. I'd be lying in bed and I'd think about this and I'd get sick to my stomach. Like literally, I'd start to feel like my stomach is in knots. Why? Because first off, there's something about eternity that just kind of hurts the mind, all right? We're finite beings and just thinking about infinity hurts. Like if you think about counting to infinity, you're never going to get any closer than when you first began. That's one of the reasons because the concept of infinity just kind of hurts the mind. The second one, The reason that uh, this made me so sick is because I didn't really love God at that point in my life. I wasn't regenerated until I was 23. But third, I've always struggled with melancholy. I've always struggled with depression. Some of you know that's part of my testimony. So the idea of eternally existing in that state of depression and melancholy just made me more depressed, right? So it might be tempting to get bored It might be tempting to get depressed by the idea of eternity. If it's only quantitative, then why not? Think about the average attention span. What do you think it is? I don't know, a couple of minutes, maybe, 30 seconds. Some of you have already turned out, right? (laughs) Tuned out, I think that's what I was trying to say. All right. So if your average, if your attention span is five minutes, or let's say you're, you know, just very, very gifted, and your, your attention span now is three hours, all right? Think about 500 trillion years, and then another 500 trillion years, and then another 500 trillion uh, years. And so that seems a bit redundant. That seems a bit repetitive, especially when you consider that after 500 trillion days, you still have an infinite number of days ahead. We sing that when we sing Amazing Grace, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, what's the next line? We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So we need to bear in mind that not only does eternal signify this quantitative reality, that it's infinite, that it's everlasting, that it's never ending, but also this qualitative reality that it's better, that it's good, that everything that you could possibly want 
is uh, there as long as your uh, desires are, are submitted to God's kingdom. Now, if that's going to be uh, to provide incentive for our hope, then we really need to understand the next point, which is that eternal life is joy's in eternal increase. This is a, a major aspect of the writings of uh, Jonathan Edwards, the greatest North American uh, theologian of all time, just slightly above our own Zach Lee. And uh, anyway, Edwards really brought out this image of eternity involving this infinite increase of joy. That's how he would describe it. Uh, the idea is basically founded upon uh, the reality that God himself is infinite and thus for all eternity, we will continue to see new expressions of God, expressions we had not seen before. And our response to those expressions, because God is inherently glorious, is to glory in his glory. It's to boast, it's, it's to exult in, uh, in his goodness as we see these new aspects of his perfections that will lead us to deeper pleasure. All right, so uh, each year, Zach and I, give each other the exact same gift for, uh, eat, for Christmas and for our birthdays. We give each other a gift card to a really fancy sushi uh, restaurant that we both love. And each year we get babysitters and then we do a d double date with our uh, wives and then we use those gift cards. A and each year as we are a little bit more than halfway done, I start to get a little sad. Why? Can anyone imagine why I start to get sad? Because I realize it's almost over, right? I'm starting to run out of room in my stomach or I'm starting to run out of money or whatever it is. And so I start to get sad. I know I'm not going to do this again for another year. And so there's a sense in which uh, there is this sadness. Even as I am uh, partaking of something that I really love, there's a sadness that begins to creep in. Eternity is not like that. There is no end. Imagine you're hiking up a mountain, and just before you reach the pinnacle of that mountain, and you think, this is it. This is the apex. I've reached the climax. There is no more pleasure. There's no more joy to be found. You start to reach the top, and you see there's a higher mountain off in the distance. And then you begin to climb up that. And just before you reach the top, and you think, this must be it. Surely there is no more pleasure, no more joy to be found. You see another mountain off in the distance that's even higher. And that goes on into eternity, unending, inexhaustible, infinite, ever-increasing pleasure, joy, happiness, and satisfaction. So eternal life isn't only the absence of things like death and sorrow and mourning and pain, but it's also the presence of joy and pleasure. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That leads us to the last point, which is that living forever is not the ultimate goal. Living forever is not the ultimate goal. It's the penultimate goal. If you don't know what the word penultimate means, it means the second highest thing. It's the penultimate goal, but it's not the ultimate goal. So let's do a quick thought exercise. I want you to imagine heaven or actually the new earth. I want you to imagine, and, uh, and you can go with it wherever your mind wants in terms of all the things that you would have there, all right? So if you really want to imagine that uh, your spouse is there, your kids are there, your dog is there, even your cat is there. For this illustration, you can use that, all right? You have this huge mansion you have the biggest screen TV, and it's just nonstop 
Cowboys games or Redskins games or whoever it is that you like. You have everything. Just go wild with it in your imagination. You have everything that you could possibly want, but God himself is not there. Would you want that heaven? How you would answer that reveals something about your heart and your hope and what you actually treasure, what you actually desire. Is it that you just desire to get out of hell or is it that you actually desire to be with God because those are different things? An unbeliever doesn't want to suffer in hell, but it takes a believer, it takes someone who has a regenerate heart to actually want to love God and to be with God and so forth. What makes eternal life so good is the presence of God. That's the ultimate goal. As John Piper would say, uh, the greatest good of the gospel is that you get God. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that you get out of hell. As good as that is, the reason that it's good to get out of hell is because you get into heaven. And the reason that it's good to get into heaven is because that's where God is. That's the whole idea there. He is the treasure. He is the goal. The reason eternal life is good is because eternal life is with God. So I want to close by reading again this picture of eternity. And as I do, Zach can prepare to come up for questions. So a picture of eternity we read before a little bit ago in Revelation 22. And as I do, I want you to notice something. We've talked about this before, this little bitty phrase buried right in the middle of this depiction of our hope. This little phrase you might just casually skim over. You might dismiss it. You might not even notice it. And yet it's our ultimate hope right there embedded in the middle of this. See if you notice it. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp, or son, for the Lord God will be their light and he will reign forever and ever. Did you notice it? Did you notice the little promise embedded there? These healing leaves, those are pretty cool. I don't know what that is, but I'd like some of those, right? The absence of things where it says there's no accursed things, that's pretty cool. But the real promise here that you might just miss over, the real promise is that God is sitting on his throne and we will see his face. That's eternal life. That's what eternal life is all about. So, Zach, why don't you come up, and uh, we'll see what questions we have. All right, we have a, a bunch of questions. So, again, if we don't get to your questions, send us an email. We are happy to uh, happy to answer uh, answer it that way. So, we'll only be able to do a few of these. These are really good questions. Um, the first one is this. <clears throat> Uh, if we will be given a new physical body, but God will remain spirit, will we be able to actually see God? Will Jesus be with us bodily and spirit or both? So let me mention a few things on that and what the church has traditionally held uh, on that question. Uh, so Jesus remains incarnate, okay? So he will always be incarnate. He is God and man, and he will remain God and man. So seeing his body is no problem. The church has traditionally taught, though, that you cannot see God with your physical eyes because God is not material. 
What does a trinity look like? What does infinity look like, right? The New Testament says this explicitly, that no, he's, it calls God something that no one has ever seen or can see. Uh, it will say things like uh, that he is invisible, dwells in unapproachable light, etc. So I think the idea, and this is what the church has traditionally called the beatific vision, the idea is you will somehow experience God's glory, though you cannot see, for example, the Father with your physical eyes because he doesn't have a body. Now let me give you an example that I think is really helpful in Scripture of this. So this comes from 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and it says this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So notice that the Bible just said we're beholding God now. We are beholding the glory of the Lord with unveiled face now, yet nobody here sees God with our physical eyes. So notice the Bible is talking more about an experiencing of God, more of a seeing God with your soul, if you want to say it that way. Uh, you'll certainly be able to see Jesus because, again, he has a human body. Uh, but that's traditionally what, uh, what the church has held. God, when God appears in the Old Testament, notice you don't actually see God. The New Testament's very clear on this. You see a symbol. You see a flaming pillar. You see a smoking pot. You see a mountain with storms on it. But you cannot see God's essence because God is invisible and he is everywhere. Uh, But anyway, so you will continually behold the glory of God. But don't think of that as the same way that you think of me seeing you with my physical eyes or something like that. But other other comments. Oh, just to to reiterate what you said, that Jesus is uh, eternally uh, united with uh, humanity. And so there is a, a, a thought uh, that a lot of Christians have just because they haven't thought about it where, so before the incarnation, Jesus is fully divine. Absolutely agree with that. In the incarnation, Jesus is fully God and fully man. They absolutely agree with that. But then they kind of think that now that he's resurrected, he's just God again, but he's not man. And that's not what the church has ever held. That's not what scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that now, since the incarnation, that he has fully united himself to humanity and that he is going to be for eternity, fully God and fully human. And so if you have questions on that or whatever it might be, please come and see us because that's a very important thing uh, to recognize that uh, is a finer point that sometimes uh, modern evangelicals don't recognize. Yeah, I mean, in Hebrews, where it talks about that there's, uh, or this is th- this idea is actually found in several different New Testament books, that Jesus is kind of this mediator between God and man. If he's going to continue to be your mediator, he has to continue to be both. That's why it says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and it says that after his resurrection. Notice he in his body is floating up into the clouds after the resurrection, etc. Uh, okay, this next question I think is really good. Are we saying that by sinning less on this earth, for example, staying married, I like that that's the, uh, the example, God I'm really going to suffer for you here by staying married, uh, will give us greater reward in heaven. What is that reward beyond the eternal life we have been promised? So basically the question is, are there different degrees of reward in heaven based upon how we act now? You want to jump into that or you want me to start? Um, Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, I think there are a number of different ways to approach the topic. Um, I think what you want to do is you want to avoid the idea that uh, the rewards would be kind of like some people have a full water bottle and some people have half full or somebody people have a quarter full or something like that. The Bible is going to be clear that everyone is going to have a full water bottle. I think when we're talking about rewards, we could potentially be talking about uh, people have different size water bottles. And, uh, and so your capacity is, uh, is increased as you uh, are faithful in this life. There has to be some connection uh, between the things that you do in this life 
and the things that come in the next life, but that connection cannot in any way have to do with meriting or earning salvation or anything like that. And, uh, and so avoiding any implications of that, but recognizing there is some effect, some relationship between those two. You want to clarify, expound? No, no, I think... Yeah, you have two options. Some, when Jesus says, if you do this, great will be your reward in heaven, or one will have, you know, great reward in heaven. There's two ways that people traditionally take that. One is to say there are differing degrees of reward in heaven based upon how you've lived. So you're, everybody's happy. The problem is not like you have a bigger mansion than me and I'm jealous. That's not the idea. The idea is that there is some benefit uh, and reward in heaven. Conversely, and this goes back to Augustine, that uh, there are different degrees of punishment in hell. Somebody who uh, doesn't know Christ is going to hell, but the devil will experience more pain than that person. Uh, The other people will say when the text just says great will be your reward in heaven, it's just saying compared to earth, not that there will be varying degrees of reward in heaven. So those are the two views. Both of those are evangelical options. Uh, I think the example Jeff gave is really helpful, the idea that... uh, uh, and Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Edwards and John Piper both talk about this, that uh, your capacity for joy is what changes, but you always feel full. You always fully experience the glory of God, something like that. Can so, I mention one other thing? Please, yeah. So I think one of the, the reasons that this might be hard for us to grasp is because all of our experiences are filtered through, uh, or all of our thoughts and interpretations are filtered through our present experience. And so we think there is no way... If Zach has a bigger mansion than me, or whatever it is, that he won't end up boasting over me. And if it's in this life, yeah, maybe that's the case. But, but we, what we have to understand is if, uh, if Zach is truly going to have this greater mansion than me or whatever, what is he also going to be? He's going to be more humble than me. All right? And so there is this sense in which uh, a lot of our understanding and expectations of the divisions that it might cause for different people to have different rewards are built upon because we still think in some sense that humanity is going to be plagued by sin. But if there is the eradication of sin in our hearts, then Zach having this greater mansion, or, or I'm just using that as a, as a, a kind of an idiomatic sort of metaphor, but uh, he has this greater uh, mansion. He doesn't feel any sense of pride over that, and I don't feel any sense of jealousy. I'm actually happy for him in, uh, in that. And so a part of our understanding has to take into account the reality that sin will be so eradicated in our lives, sin will be so eradicated, there will be nothing in that eternal state that will cause us any sense of displeasure, whether it's envy or jealousy or pride or boasting or whatever it might be. So. All right. Uh, this might be our last one. It depends on how quickly we get through it. This is a great pastoral question. How should an eternal focus influence my attitude towards sin and unraveling marriage, suffering, etc.? Okay, I'll give you two thoughts and then I'll uh, I'll kick it uh, kick it to Jeff. So, I think properly viewing the gospel and properly viewing Christ is everything. It is the most practical thing in the world. Zach, why do we do so much theology? Why can't you just give me practical steps to be a better husband? Because if you understand theology correctly, you'll naturally be a better husband. Okay, theology is inherently practical. So let me give you two things to keep in mind. First of all, having an eternal perspective helps you get through suffering now, okay? So if I say to you, you have cancer, and it's terminal cancer, but we've come up with a new cure, and you have to take this pill every day for a year, and it will make you feel sick every day, and you will throw up every day, and you will hate life every day, but at the end of the year, you will no longer have the cancer, and you'll be fine. 
Yes, it will still be awful to throw up and take that pill every day, but because you have this hope that one day it will not be like that, it gives you hope through the suffering. You realize that the suffering is only temporary. I think that's one uh, helpful thing. The bigger and more important thing, and this has to do with if you have an unraveling marriage or you have uh, financial stresses or you have health issues, is this. When you realize that your reward is Christ, it cannot be taken away from you. If I think that my goal here on earth is to have a really great wife, it might be worth leaving Katie. There might be another lady that I like and is a better wife more than my wife Katie. But if I realize that Jesus is where I find my joy, all of a sudden the question doesn't become comparing my wife to another woman. It becomes comparing my wife to Jesus, and Jesus is always better. And so it's the same way with your job. It's the same way with your kids. It's the same way whatever. If Jesus is your highest joy, your highest joy can't be taken away. All of a sudden, you're able to put up with difficult things, and you're able to be patient. You don't have to live your life for you because you have an eternal perspective. So I think that's everything. I think that's the most practical thing, whether it comes to your life, your marriage, your job, whatever it might be. But other thoughts? That's good. Okay, last one. Even though we're just over time, it's such a great question. How do we reconcile Matthew 16, 28? What does that say, Zach? With the fact that we are not to die. Here's what it says. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We're not saying that they won't taste death ever. Those people died. When Jesus says there are people here in front of me that won't taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom, guess what? Jesus already came in his kingdom. His resurrection is when he comes in his kingdom. Remember that the end times, we have a tendency to read that passage as just the second coming, and then it gets confusing. It's like Jesus is lying. There are people here that won't die till I come back more than 2,000 years later. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there are people here who won't die until they see me come for the first time. They see me inaugurate my kingdom. They see me uh, in the resurrection and the ascension and giving of the spirit and all these kind of things. Those people will not die. But let me be clear, those people are dead now. Uh, And so uh, we will still die short of the second coming of Christ. It's only if you're alive during the second coming that you don't die. But anyway. Yeah, I would just add, sometimes you see the phrase taste death. uh, And sometimes it refers to spiritual death and sometimes it refers to physical death. And so you have to just wrestle with the context, which one the, uh, the author is intending. So you and I will never taste spiritual death. If you love and trust Jesus, you will never taste spiritual death. Uh, but if, uh, if uh, Jesus tarries, then every one of us will taste death in the physical sense. But the uh, authors of Scripture don't use that phrase the same way uh, throughout. So uh, as we always say, uh, words don't have meaning, phrases don't have meaning, independent of the context. Context is always going to help us understand what is meant. Is it meant there, you will not taste physical death, or what is it meant there, you will not taste spiritual death? So you have to look at that individual text. That's it? You want to pray? You want me to pray? Okay. Father, I thank you for uh, the promises that you make, that uh, you are a good father who gives good gifts to your children. And, uh, and so uh, we get the, uh, the promise of eternal life, but I also confess that that promise is only good because... That promise comes along with it, uh, along with the promise of your presence and uh, that you will dwell with us, that we will see your face, that there will uh, be no mourning or crying or suffering or pain or anything accursed. And, uh, and so I pray that you would use that uh, uh, vision, Lord, to compel us to obedience in the present, that you would use it to help us, those of us who Uh, are suffering, those of us who are sad, those of us who uh, are anxious or fearful, those of us who are struggling with a particular uh, 
uh, affliction of, of some sort of sin, Lord, that you would use that message, Lord, not to condemn us, but to challenge us and to convict us, leading us to uh, greater faith and repentance for your glory and for our ultimate joy, which we'll find in, uh, in Christ. And so would you bless us as we go forth from here and open your word and sing together and encourage one another and uh, partake of communion and all of these different signs that you've given us, uh, again, to, uh, to establish us and to build us up and to strengthen us in the faith. Uh, in the faith. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen.